Hi and welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. Today I'm speaking to Harris Bider and Kasminda Chahal, authors of The Other America, White Working Class Perspectives on Race, Identity and Change. Both Harris and Kush are based at Birmingham City University. They interviewed over 400 people across America during Trump's election campaign in 2016 and what they found will help us understand a lot of the issues around class and race that face us today and offer ways of addressing them. Hi Harris, hi Kush. Hi, hi. Thank you for talking to me today. Um, so why is it important to talk about white working class people in the US given the challenges and problems people and communities of colour have to face every day? I think that's right now that's probably a good question to start with. Uh, I think white working class communities are part of every society and part in the states and elsewhere so it's important for their voices to be heard like any other uh, group or community in society. And secondly, I would say that it's really important that we engage with white working class communities, as this book has done, because when we think about the landmark uh, political events recently, Trump's election victory, Brexit, the rise of populism, the narrative in the media and in research is that that's been fired and driven by white working class communities. So what, what we're trying to do is dig deeper to find out what is really going on by engaging with people on a grassroots perspective to give them a voice that can regress some of the broad sweeping narratives that exist uh, at the moment. And in that way, put forward a view of white working class communities that is as di they are as diverse as any other group in society. That's not to say that the issues and challenges of structural racism are not important at all. Uh, they are important, and both Kush and I, both in terms of our activist work and as researchers and in policy, have a long track record around anti-racism. We feel it's important to put forward this view in a very grassroots way to try and build some alliances between communities of colour and white working class communities, because I think there's a desire uh, from our part that white working class communities, some of those that we interviewed, are very keen to build those grassroots alliances. Yeah. Don't know what Kush, what Kush would do then. Okay, um, thanks for that. I, I, I completely agree with Harris, and there was some sort of just one or two things I wanted to add to that. One is that you can't separate the problems in a sense from one community to another. So there's a lot of interrelation and interrelation between sort of, you know, white American communities and if we like black and brown communities. Uh, and so I think for us, what we were, the way we were coming at this was to try and get that sort of nuanced sort of understanding uh, about this particular group of people, in our case, white working class communities. Yeah. And, um, and trying to move it away and understand it more deeply from that sort of populist way of thinking that Harris had just mentioned. Um, but I think finally it was just more about that the problems black and brown people face, for example, in a sense cannot actually be separated from their relationship and interaction with, with white people and white communities in, in the States as well. And so we were trying to also see how those groups come together in some way as well. Yeah. Um, so before we start talking about that and what your research uncovered, what are some of the media narratives, perceptions and stereotypes that we're talking about here? 
I think I, I think from from my perspective, I mean they're very they're very clear. Is that white working class communities are seen as being a lump on proletariat, uh, being generally regarded as not being very intelligent, uh, of being unthinking, about being disconnected. In the States, they're commonly termed as being trailer trash, which is a pejorative term. Um, so I think those stereotypes are very clear in the, in the United States in the way that that's happened. And particularly the critique around those communities tends to come from uh, the media, who have, I think, been labelled as part of the elite. And also, I think, to be fair, it comes from some academics as well who double down on that stereotype as well. So those are the perceptions. And I think those perceptions are unfair because of my lived experiences of growing up in Birmingham and going to schools in, in largely white working class communities. It's certainly not my perception. And as white working class communities in the States have been uh, framed as this, it's actually driven me personally uh, to use the tools that I have to uncover the truth. And the, um, the truth is very, very different from the perceptions and stereotypes of white working class communities. I think um, the perceptions are really strong and they have a huge consequence as well. And so I think we were also very much focused around sort of trying to explore how perceptions generally can be contradictory, but also how they're potentially politically framed, uh, you know, depending on what the context is or what policy or action, you know, the current power formation of government is trying to achieve. And I think, in a sense, our research was within the heart of what was going on at that moment within that power formation. Uh, so, you know, so one of the perceptions and Harris has sort of alluded to this, is, is this notion of left behind. Um, you know, so an alternative narrative could be white working class communities are left behind. Um, they haven't benefited from growth in the economy. Um, that, for example, elites, particularly black minority communities, may have also benefited from. And so in this sense, it was about this perception that they're trying to reclaim a position so it felt like there was this sort of competition going on between, you know, how groups are positioning themselves. And, and exactly that point that those stereotypes that Harris has just sort of mentioned seem to, in a sense, then get utilised within that positioning as well. Um, so, you know, how, how do people who have lost that much, who are seen in a particular way, um, you know, how can they then gain or have or should I at least say haven't gained? but need to gain and benefit in a sense. So there was this sort of cocktail of mix of reactionary, if you like, as uh, you know, sort of conversations, media discourse that was going on. I mean, the opposite view could be that the working class, and exactly as Harris has sort of broken down in that pejorative sense, is that this sort of singular sort of group that's traditional, reactionary, opposed to diversity. And we, we were sort of saying, well, are they? How else could this big group be looked at uh, mm. from that nuanced approach? Are they really that sort of ahistorical in a sense, so that fixed? Um, and I think those are the sorts of questions that we were coming from. And interestingly, Harris talks about our then personal experiences. What were we taking into that arena? 
what impact did your backgrounds have on your approach? I think from my point of view, we talk about it in great length, really, in one of the chapters, and it's chapter two in the book, because we were really concerned, <clears throat> excuse me, to be able to reflect on, one, what took us to the US, but two, then how we experienced it and what we were taking with us in terms of our own positionality. So we were quite keen to explore that because we've had experiences. We have our own biographies, our own experiences of growing up <clears throat> as sort of, um, you know, British Indian, British, British Pakistani uh, men. And so we were keen to explore that, that what that might mean within the context of US. Um, the, 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 the issue, I think, for us then became that we had to work with ourselves as much as anything before you enter a sort of a complex, complicated field. What actually work were we doing with ourselves? We were very conscious that we had to talk about who we were, what sorts of issues may come up for us in terms of what I think in the book we describe as a febrile sort of atmosphere. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that we were keen to express in the chapter uh, in the book and was our approach was taking this sort of very empath empathic, empathetic approach to the mm -hmm. fieldwork, not going with a judgment. And that's quite difficult when there was so much judgment behind you in the sense in terms of the media and the discourse, the narratives around white work. So we were able to separate some of that and we talked about this at great length and we have done for many years because of our own lived experience of living and working in and with white communities. Um, so it, it was, it was, we wanted to create something that was believable, that, that highlighted um, a different story in yeah. a sense. That's, and I think, I mean, I think that's quite powerful just to add what Kish said is that I think both of us uh, of who we are, you know, British, Indian, British, Pakistani, Grown up in Telford in Cushion's case, grown up in Birmingham in my case, uh, inner city, yeah, my inner city background, uh, going to school in largely, uh, which is located in a white council estate, largely white council estate in Birmingham. In a sense, we're both, both, we're both outsiders. We're both outsiders. That's our positionality in academia. We're outsiders we, because we're people of colour entering into institutions that are largely white. And that gave us uh, or afforded us the opportunity to have that empathy with people that we met who were also considered themselves to be outsiders, also yeah. felt disconnected. And therefore, us coming in as British researchers, as outsiders, enabled us to ask those questions that perhaps white middle class academics who don't have our lived experiences yeah. were either afraid to ask or didn't have the tools or skill set to ask. And I think that's really, I think Kush and I have spoken about this at length, it's enabled us to mobilise and access and build trust uh, and do this large scale ethnography, if really, or type of ethnography in the States um, and get the data uh, that uh, we got because people trusted us because people connected with us and, and people gave us time in, in shed loads uh, because they liked who we were and they can under, understand in a subliminal way our positionality <clears throat> was similar to theirs. And that's what makes 
the book so powerful is that it was two Brits who were from Asian backgrounds coming in into distressed neighbourhoods and and developing an empathy and understanding of those people. So I think that's for me was that, that's one of the most powerful learning uh, opportunities I had and experiences. That's really interesting. Just, Sorry, I, I think that, that just very quickly, it's just one thing I want to say is that we, uh, Harry sort of again alluded to, we, you know, we're not traditionally from higher education. It's not something we've always been in. And I do think those sorts of things have an impact. So, you know, having a range of different ways that mm. you have worked and lived also gives you a different sort of gaze to the subject matter in this case, um, which was around working white, working class. And that point about once you enter into that field, actually feeling confident and, in a sense, assessing the situation enough to be able to say we possibly can ask potentially contentious questions yeah. um, and, and and not necessarily feel threatened by that was, was quite powerful. I'll just add one final thing to this. So neither Kush and I are pointy-headed academics. <laughs> neither can we edit are, that? No, no. no. I, want, I, wanted to, I wanted to stay in. <laughs> Neither of us are pointy-headed academics who get a thrill at producing a paper that is read by five people in an obscure <clears throat> conference in Eastern Europe. We're not interested in that, okay? We want to engage with people. We want to, our research to have an impact and an influence and give people an opportunity to add a platform to put their views forward, whether we agree or disagree. Yeah and challenge or are empathetic around it. It's not important. It's about mm -hmm. who we are. Our positionality is about who we are, what we're about, our lived experiences inside and outside academia, being outsiders, trying to get difficult subjects for people to listen to. And in that way, we, we get access, I would say, in a lot of the work, not just this study and elsewhere, because of our positionality. I think I think the book does that really well because it you feel through the book how you did connect with the people you were mm. talking to and um the it is you do present everything in quite a straightforward accessible way and you really do get a sense of what it is like to be white working class um which takes me to the next question like what did you find out what does it mean to be white working class in America at the moment? I think for me um what we learned was in a sense that 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 the this sort of mass that we call white working class or that we sort of undifferentiate it in a sense in terms of language, you know, it's not necessarily this sort of stable, preformed body politic, you know, it's it's something that's come about through history, through circumstances, through politics, through positioning. Um and people can move into, you know, those sorts of, you know, that working class so-called position and as much as move out of it as well so there was this flow of people that we were talking to who may for example uh, have been working class may not have been working class but had come into that status situation there was certainly one or two conversations we had so we weren't looking at it as this sort of predefined you know sort of group of people um it, it, what was interesting from their point of view, the people we spoke to, was um, how often they were willing to contradict uh, how working class is defined, number one. Mm -hmm. But number two, also, um, 
how often they were willing not to talk about the white part of working class. You know, yeah, there were these really, sort of two yeah. things, yeah, that going on at the same time. Um, and the the former was much more about this sort of the material side of it. Well, you know, I'm educated. You know, I have a, a, a degree. Um, you know, looking within the, working within the definitions of white working class. But uh, but you know, I'm struggling. You know, I, I don't earn this. I haven't achieved the American dream. What it, however, people are couching these conversations to, as I say, the, the latter about dropping white. So where people didn't necessarily want to talk about white as such. It was just focusing on working class, which I think will Harris will probably talk about again. But I think for me also, one of the things that really resonated in, in terms of trying to answer the question was what I learnt and we were trying to then reflect in the book and trying to strip back so that it could just illuminate people's voices was this notion of how many times people just talked about living paycheck to paycheck and was that a, a key you know a particular aspect of the white working class or working class experience that we were talking about um, so that their status in a sense focused much more around you know, if we're saying, well, what does it mean to be white and working class? Does it mean that it was focused around insecurity or not being too far away from potentially deprivation or mm. material insecurity? And these sorts of economic hardships were often sort of talked about. Um, so I think for me, it was it was as much of those sorts of that sort of precariousness of what it is as an as a lived experience compared to how it's actually seen as a as a definition that is ut utilised administratively in a sense, you know, yeah. which I think again we talk about at great length in 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 the book. Um, Harris, no, I would just say everything that you said, but uh, the other thing that came across in all of our sites in in terms of the field work, and again it's in the book, is the importance of values that bound all these disparate. Uh, people that we spoke together and they stretch from people who worked in as a, as a clinician in a hospital to some people who are unemployed uh, and the values focused in on reciprocity looking after your family being honest being direct mm. yeah, uh, the collective nature of it and that stayed with people those values which were very very visceral and in a way differentiated themselves from other groups or other people uh, in wider society who didn't share those values. Oh, okay, and that's interesting. So, so, so Kush is absolutely right, uh, is that the white bit was dropped and yeah. the focus in on the working class. That that was a lot of the discussion. And, and that notion of values was, you know, if we were to sort of draw a diagram about working class values would be the absolute thing that is the foundation of how a lot of these people mm. talked about. Harris has already mentioned some of them. They also talked in terms of the, the notion of hard work, for example, pride and have, uh, humility, you know, these sorts of things. And if we were then to connect that with what was going on right then in the States uh, and potentially even now, but certainly then, Th those sorts of things were the things that beginning, those values were the things that beginning, in a sense, for people to work through in terms of their choices around, for example, 
the two electoral candidates at the yeah. time, which was um, mm. uh, Donald Trump and, and Hillary Clinton. You know, so there was this real, the values really were working through these conversations we were having with them. One of the most telling things I found when I read the book was the fact that whiteness wasn't really discussed um, by these this particular group. Do you think the people you spoke to had an understanding of like, white privilege and structural racism, or was that just not something that they thought about? I would say that if you went to some of the places and neighbourhoods that we went to and mm. say, you have privilege because you're a white person, you would get a vitriolic response on that because many of the people we interviewed didn't see their white privilege at all. And they would say to us countless number of times, I'm working two jobs, I'm working three jobs, I barely make enough money to feed my family on it, so where's my privilege? I'm still stuck here, I've got no sense of social mobility, and my living conditions are absolutely terrible. Or there's no one in politics uh, in our local areas or nationally who's uh, championing us in the same way. So where's my white privilege? Where is my privilege? I don't see it. I don't get it. And so many other people that we interviewed couldn't see their privilege. That's not to say that they didn't feel that uh, communities of colour and black communities particularly didn't feel that there are issues around racism and structural racism that need to be addressed. They did understand that. But when you speak to them about privilege, they just did not get it because their lived experiences, again, something that Kush said earlier on, the lived experiences counteracted that view that they had any privilege whatsoever. They didn't see it. You know, it's a massive... expanse of land that we were covering, you know, from sort of New York all the way to Tacoma and and then various places in between. So even within that, there was lots of nuance within those conversations. You know, people were, some were, of course, in one particular camp and others in another and others were trying to work out what their positions were. But I thought what was really interesting with the question around, you know, was whiteness discussed was for us, the reflections we kept having about after sort of doing a focus group or having conversations with people, um, how often white just got dropped and you were just talking about working class, you know, in the focus group at that point of data collection. And it didn't matter how often we as sort of researchers would try and re-ask the question and take them back to talking about white working class. No sooner did white fall again. It was always working class. Um, So this this idea that... um, you know, white was well, whiteness, you know, which is in a sense slightly different, was 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 sort of discussed or not discussed. It, it, it often felt you couldn't get access into it uh, unless there was one or two or other people in that room who were then willing to raise an issue, which they did, for example, around, um, you know, uh, what what level of diversity there was in their neighbourhood or things like that. Um but I also I think one of the things that was interesting and it sort of merges in, um, in in the discussion was that some did talk of their sort of very historical role as that sort of the backbone of America. Uh, and some of these conversations we had and, and that was often without any reference to to race or privilege and, and, and actually completely ahistorical in some sense as well. Mm. 
And this had, you know, as much to do with how that group, crudely white working class, have been sort of socially constructed and positioned as much to do with them how those people, some of those people were, were talking about their experience. So they were talking about their experience through a particularly constructed lens, you know. Uh, and I think for me, um, and range of conversations we used to have, for me, what it meant to be white working class, so bringing in a sense whiteness back into it, from a particular perspective that was being given to us was being misunderstood, you know, being unheard, being in a precarious situation. And so where then would they have room to talk about, for example, the, the whiteness? Because in a sense, they were often talking about material conditions, if you, if you see what I mean. Um, it, it, it was became quite complex, didn't it, Harris, at certain points in terms of being able to have a conversation? Do you mean that they almost didn't have the opportunity to step back and have that viewpoint of their lives in relation to other people's lives? Yeah, I, th I, I think the whiteness or even race, I think whiteness or even just talking about race was just often discounted, sometimes dismissed or just plain ignored. Um, and again, I'm not saying by all respondents, because we have 415 respondents, but generally. And I think for, for us, it sort of suggested that some respondents, uh, you know, were, you know, actually to, for them to uncover a privilege would be very different or difficult when they seem that see their lives through a lens of normality. It's the normative uh, way of looking at the world. So it was normalised. It was, as I put, you know, un it was uncritically viewed as neutral. So the conversation that some people are having was seen as race neutral in some senses. And I think for me, in some senses, the, the recent sort of like Black Lives Movement protests, which, you know, many of us in it are talking about, have made that, you know, that um, notion of white privilege much more visible again. And potentially also class privilege. Uh, you know, race is not neutral, is, you know, the mantra of Black Lives Matters in some senses. You know, it literally has life and death consequences. And so, so you know, it, it, it was the struggle, I think, often of walking into a room or somebody's home or somebody's garden. We, we did these interviews in a range of different places mm. and then actually getting them to often grapple with what might be conversations that they themselves wouldn't ordinarily have with people like us, if yeah. you see what I mean. And, and one of the interesting things, and I know Harris will add to this, was that um, so many people at the end of our interactions would say to us, they haven't even had a chance ever to talk like this. And they yeah. were happy for the opportunity to talk. Yeah. Uh, and that was equally powerful. I mean, I, I mean, I would only say, uh, add to that, that uh, we opened up conversations that, that they felt had been closed down. They didn't have an opportunity to talk about their lived experience. And I think that's one of the uh, critiques, I, I think, in terms of uh, the middle class white experience is that the privilege, some, not all of them, but some said, is that if you have money, you can have the privilege of talking about your white privilege because it's there. You know, you can get you can have, you have the money to go to some of the best restaurants in town or to send your kids to private to some of the best schools or to have to collect material possessions 
you can you you have that privilege, you have that comfort to talk about it. When you're screwing around paycheck to paycheck and trying to feed your kids, uh, just survive on a day to day basis, yeah. you you may not have the headspace to even think about that. So I think Kush is absolutely right. It's a class view on this, yeah. and that's where I think that there's huge amounts of critique to. Uh, either directly or indirectly, to white middle-class people who have the liberty and the tools to talk about their privilege and felt disconnected and were totally disconnected from some of the people that Kush and I spoke to. So do you think the murder of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's happening at the moment, will it have an impact in those communities? I think it's a really interesting question because, again, there's an assumption um, in the narrative around this, that people put forward around this culture wars between white communities and black communities, which I think is false. I think I think many of the people that Kush and I met would uh, would recognise that what happened in Minneapolis to George Floyd was wrong. That there has to be accountability and has to be punishment for mm. that. So I think there'll be some understanding and empathy and I'll, I'll be surprised in, uh, you always get a minority but many of the people that we went back to them said uh, would would be anything other than horrified about what, what went on with the murder of George Floyd. In terms of the impact mm. on white working class communities in the US that's a really really interesting question. There's lots of uh, themes and issues and facets within that question i i think again the narrative uh from uh, some of the media will be to have this binary division between black and white and castigate those people who protect have want to protect their legacy mm. in terms of statues or anything else would castigate them as being unthinking and stupid mm. and uh, small-brained in a, in a way. Now, some of those people may be supporters of the far right or the alt-right in the States, maybe part of a hooligan fraternity, but a lot of people do, do, do not want like, history to be erased. They want history to be there in the form of statues and other memorabilia, so it can be challenged and discussed. And... What we need to remember also is just that black communities and community colours are legacy populations. White working class communities are legacy populations as well. Yeah. Now, white working class communities were built on immigration from the mid 19th century, Irish immigration, then Im immigration to the States from uh, Europe in the uh, last part of the 19th century, first part of this, they're legacy populations. They yeah. have a legacy too, and they have a contribution to be made, and their view should not be silenced. They can be challenged, and we can disagree with it, but it cannot be silenced, and it shouldn't be silenced, because otherwise we're into, this is my view, there's a danger of going into this formal, into a very, very dangerous place where people are censored for having a view. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? So yeah, I yeah. think that that's one of the things. I don't know what Kush, what you think, Kush, on that. Yeah, I think all of those things were there. 
even in the, the data and the stories and the interactions we have, those are some of the sorts of things people were talking about, uh, you know, being silenced but not wanting to be silenced. Uh, and again, you know, you could sort of take it in a different way that, you know, given white society potentially is, is normative in the USA, that then we've got to work harder to really work through their grievance because there's a grievance attached to what people were talking about with us. Not Again, not everybody, because no way would Harris and I ever lump a group of people into one category. You know, there are a multitude of, of experiences and conversations that people are having. But I think for me, the death of uh, George Floyd then in that sense has resonance even from that data that we, we collected in 2016-17 because it informs what was going on uh, then, and that is still informing what is happening now. Um, you know, so we know, for example, if we're talking about impact, I mean, what impact will the death of George Floyd, George Floyd have on uh, white communities, potentially across the globe, but certainly in the States, is I think it largely depends on how we represent that group. We either sort of say, oh, they're just this undifferentiated mass, you know. And our research way back then was already trying to say, no, this group is not that. And that was also as much of our learning from work we'd done in the UK, um, working with um, um, Harris's work specifically around white working class communities in the UK, and then work we did jointly did together working with Muslim and white communities in London. We, it's, it's about how do you differentiate the group to then be able to get the nuance, if you like, the debate, the disagreements, the contradictions that then constitute that group. Um, so I think from, from that sort of framework, I think there will be differences of opinion. There definitely will be anger, and we know there is, and disbelief that another black man has been murdered by the police. But the other side of it also is that some will also not still can connect to the history of racism that actually is very deep and runs deeply in the states amongst other countries i mean we're obviously talking about states and and in a sense our responsibility i think as researchers is when we're doing this type of work is how we can utilize it to connect to those histories how can we uncover those histories um you know and and uh, how can we put people who feel or perceive that they've been silenced, how can we give them a voice that then raises that voice to a level of you can have a conversation with another group? Um, that, in a sense, is the hope of, I think, what we're trying to do. And hopefully through, for us, the legacy through the, you know, the death of George Floyd and many others. So it's about then breaking things down in order to be able to make connections. And then that's the way you make progress, isn't it? Rather than having massive walls between I think that's exactly right, because when we look at these, the what we're seeing on the television, there is this different sort of coalitions that are coming together. Mm. Um, but also we, in a sense, Harris and I stepped into uh, a position in 2016, 17, where there was obviously this election going on. Yes. And, and, and what that you know meant then is equally relevant to what it means now. Um, you know, so I do think also the impact the murder of, for example, George Floyd will have on working class communities, that some will potentially move away from that populist, xenophobic, racist, dismissive tone of the current president. Uh, and, but, and some won't. Some will stay fairly entrenched. And my understanding from 
current research and current opinion polls is that primarily white males are still generally fairly entrenched and in support of Trump. But we have a way to go before the elections. So there is change go occurring. And you know, we were in a good position also to begin to look at some of the nuances of how people were thinking through some of those changes at the time. So it kind of just so happened, didn't it, that your research ended up taking place well during the Trump campaign, um, which I guess was quite lucky in lots of ways, and distracting in others. It certainly wasn't by design. <laughs> um, but yeah, Harris, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, so I think it's quite. I think it's really interesting. We're there in a specific moment in time, um, and I think in the book, I mean, we've we've put forward the view that Trump was similar to Obama. Uh, in 2008. Trump in 2016 was similar to Obama in 2008 because they were both uh, candidates who represented hope and change. Yeah. And Obama was white liberals, communities of colour uh, in the cities. Trump, white working class, people who felt disconnected, uh, men uh, in particular in the Rust Belt and elsewhere. So they're both hope and change candidates and they were uh, addressing vested interests in the in their candidates. So uh, not all white people voted for Trump. Many did find his approach really appealing. And I think it goes back to those visceral values. Trump, many people thought Trump came across as a jerk, but... They admired the fact that he was an out, he painted himself as an outsider. There's this narrative of the people versus the elites. Uh, he spoke in a, a way that many people found racist, but he was very direct. He knew where you stood with him. Uh, many people that we interviewed said at least he builds hotels and other places and create jobs in the States. And against Clinton... Hillary Clinton, and as often it was the Clintons, the Clinton, she came across as an insider, someone who was not trustworthy, who uh, made a living on the backs of working class people uh, in the States, yeah. and therefore was they weren't going to vote for her. So <clears throat> I think that people versus this elite narrative, Trump's campaign uh, plugged into that. And that Make America Great Again which was a slogan in 2016, yeah, I think was an amazing slogan because in many respects politically, because it cut through, it hinted to a better future for his voters or the voting for people who voted for him. But it also was nostalgic about the past. Okay. Yeah, clever, so combined the past and the present is a clever frame of words. And that really cut through, I think. And Kush, what did you think? <laughs> But it was a particular sort of clever slogan. I mean, there was a there was you know a fair amount of dog whistling going on. Of course, that. Yeah, yeah. just as much as we know across this way, you know, with Brexit and and some of the slogans, and and they worked. You know, they had a resonance for for certainly you know a particular constituency. I think what was really powerful about Trump, within the context of us being there as well and doing the work we were doing was that the values that people were talking about 
So um, white people talking about working class values that we've sort of you know mentioned, uh, you know, in terms of you know, working hard, uh, you know, reciprocity, honesty, trust, pride. Um, you know, for, for some of these people, they were able to then tune into Trump through that in terms of the way some of the things he was talking about in terms of, for example, offering a voice, offering representation. And as Harris says, giving hope, you know, I'm going to bring back jobs. You know, we're going to challenge these global elites, you know, China amongst others. Um, and, it, and it resonated uh, for, for, for many. So you mentioned earlier um, about ways we define class and white working class um, that's to do with, I don't know, salary types of occupation and how that's not really a good way of doing it. What problems does that cause defining class in those quite narrow ways? I think, uh, uh, I think for me, it's a very narrow way of defining working class, because on that basis, the definitions that we had, certainly in the States, is that if you're a white person uh, without a college degree, um, and on that basis, then Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg will be members of the white working class oh, yeah. because, because they're white and they don't have a college degree. They both left uh, Harvard uh, and without completing their degree. And so it's a, it, 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 it's a definition that doesn't hold. It's not fit for purpose in our view. And what needs to happen is that the definitions need to be modernized to reflect uh, some of the findings that we had. So the importance of some way of factoring in about values, which is very difficult to measure, or and I, I understand yeah. that. But if you have a very narrow definition of white working class, you will exclude a whole bunch of people who classify themselves as white working class. And that was the problem in 2016 uh, in the States, because the people who voted for Trump mm -hmm. were not necessarily working in construction, were not necessarily unemployed, uh, had a range of different occupations outside the traditional blue collar occupations, had a range of different income levels. And yet the narrative was that the working class in the Rust Belt voted for Trump. Yeah. That may be the case. But the point is, is that what connected all of those people in the States that voted for Trump in this coalition was partly that they, they felt disconnected, left behind. Um, their values did not connect with uh, the dominant values that existed in the States that were they many people felt were perpetrated by elites. Uh, and that's the reason that people coalesced around this mantra of working class, which is a much wider and more complicated definition from the narrow version that has been driven, I would say, by top-down policymakers imposing this on people without understanding their lived experiences. But it's, so, only, yeah, it's well, only by doing that that you understand the decisions that they make sure. and why they vote for certain, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's and that's the same in the States as in, as in the UK. Yeah. Brexit, yeah. Brexit came as a shock to us, but it didn't come as a shock to me and Kush because right. of doing this research, it enabled us to understand what was going on in, in countries or some yeah. parts of the countries. Yeah, good. No, thank you. And, and I think also, I mean, the, 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 these sort of facts aren't always borne out as well. This sort of notion that 
you know, if we're talking both about Brexit and Trump, for example, that, you know, it was that, you know, this sort of group called white working class that primarily went over to that side and, you know, voted for Trump and Brexit. It, you know, if you take a far more nuanced approach or even some of the more recent work that's coming out around, that, I would suggest something quite different. Yes, of course, that's partly true, but it's not the whole picture. And the whole picture would also suggest that in terms of utilising the US language, uh, you know, college educated, um, you know, um, college graduates were you know, equally uh, sort of voting Trump as okay. this group okay. that we kept calling working class and white working class. And similarly, that was true on this side in terms of Brexit. There was a middle class vote that substantially voted for Brexit. But we we have to then ask the question why we we label some of these more reactionary, um, you know, sort of uh, populist type responses to a particular mass called white working class. And and I think that's largely because it, it works. It do, it serves a purpose. Um, you know, if we we're, we're sort of focusing on class so much that in a sense, people forget that this other group, uh, African-American or black or minorities, also do have a class position as well. Yeah. And actually, they may have a similar class position and likely to have a similar class position to white working class. You know, and it's it sort of it's sort of in a sense you know, it, it's reducing sort of race all the time to just being something about those other people and class is something to do with us over here. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, so that sort of masks some of those systemic inequalities also that potentially need to be raised. And again, you know, the murder of George Floyd obviously again raises that issue. We've mentioned UK quite a lot on Brexit, obviously. Um, how do you think what you learned and what your research uncovered translates to other countries, the UK or anywhere else? So, uh, so I think the value of the book, even though it was located in a country specific um, and the data there, but if you look at all the movements that are happening and um, continue to happen in, in Europe, in the States, Brazil, Philippines, elsewhere, there is this narrative of the people versus the elites. There is this sense, and Brexit, Brexit is an example of that, uh, and it's fed through uh, very recently in, in UK politics, but again across Europe with the rise of AFD in Germany, with the Sweden Democrats in, in, in Sweden, Front National uh, in France, in Italy with the populist movements, uh, there. What we are finding is communities who, uh, particularly those uh, uh, in deindustrialized regions and places where there's been massive restructuring of the economy, there's jobs have been uh, uh, displaced, um, people feel that they're not represented by traditional parties in that sense do feel that their voice is limited and do want to make their voices heard. And, of course, in that mix, you need to put in through population change, uh, identities, uh, sense of resentment that many people feel. So I think the lessons are, broadly speaking, is that 
you need to understand to have any successful electoral coalition of interest in the UK, in Europe and elsewhere, you can't leave the white working class behind. No. You need to have a coalition of interest that includes uh, an electoral bloc of white working class voters, uh, young voters, uh, voters who are black, Asian and minority ethnic in the UK and liberal whites. And that's your electoral coalition. Mm. Now, what that sense of electoral coalition has been ceded to or uh, pushed by parties positions on the extreme right. And for me, one of the lessons is, is that if, you need, if you're going to get progressive governments in the UK and US again, you need to understand that this group that we call the white working class are really important, not just in terms of politics, but you don't need to, need to listen, you need to engage, you need to challenge, you need to debate those issues, and you need to give them a sense of validation that they're equally as important as any other group in society. And I think those are the lessons, the very visceral policy and political lessons that certainly I feel yeah. passionate about that needs to be put forward. And uh, people need to wake up. It's not about taking extremist positions. It's about giving people a voice and be direct and engage uh, in a very open and transparent way. And I think that's what's happening. That's what's happening, I think, with Joe Biden being the candidate. In the States, is very clear, if you look at the recent figures there, he's well ahead of Trump in the Rust Belt states because he understands that currency. Keir Starmer, although it's very early on in the UK, is his, he is taking a position that we need to listen to what's happened in the North, yeah, yeah, yeah. in some of those places. So that's, for me, that's really telling. I do think that, in, in a sense, what how it translates is partly to be able to show that across borders and boundaries there's you know there there, there are similar themes and, and similar ways that people are talking about their either their perceived disenfranchisement or their perceived lack of opportunities and i think they're being talked about in very similar ways whether that's in the uk or as we were at that point in the us and i would even go as far to say even in europe we would find those very similar narratives and themes um so there's certainly that but i also think that the project itself as a, as a different sort of lesson is that, you know, it, it methodologically it worked. You know, we were able to go into areas, cities, places that we didn't know much about, but working through sort of key contacts within communities who were able to, you know, introduce us to other people, introduce us into the heart of often what was sometimes very small um you know, sort of community organisations, and, and to give us traction was equally important. It's an equally important lesson. You can get traction in, in, in communities and organisations. Um, and we were doing, you know, real spread of work. So, you know, we didn't have the luxury of a lot of time, in a sense. We were, we were going from place to place and, and then working through. So I think there's sort of research lessons as well how you approach this type of work uh, that's equally important um, and I think then I just think finally for, for, for me on that point is that I think the other lesson is similar to again what Harris was saying is how do people who are different um, who are defined as different who are positioned as different actually come together and you know we were 
we were keen to sort of explore that as well in terms of what lessons are there within that. Um, and certainly one of the things that we, you know, were very keen to sort of tease out was well, what types of connections do people make with people who were seen as different from, from themselves? Um, and, and it was very much often seen in a very sort of, you know, what we sort of call like a soft, soft approach. You know, people you brush alongside in sort of everyday commonplace situations as opposed to it being sort of very hardwired. And I think those things itself tend to, again, give us lessons that certainly in the UK experience, the European experience, that, you know, rather than sort of immediately saying, making bland and grand statements like, you know, multiculturals failed or multiracial societies don't work. It's actually about really going on the ground and identifying, exploring what is really going on and what is what are the obstacles for people to be able to connect with people who are different. My last question is, um, I suppose, more practical in a way. So from from everything we've learned, how do you start building those cross-racial coalitions or coalitions of interest? I think you mentioned hardwired change. How how can governments and communities maybe support starting to make that hardwired change? Mm-hmm. Kush, do you want to lead on this? Yeah, and again, we th- th- this was important, the notion of cross-racial coalitions and cross-racial coalition building within the book. And it was something, again, that was discussed in uh, the penultimate chapter. We were keen to sort of explore through these conversations how people were connecting with the the opposite, so black in a sense. Uh, And again, what we we found was that there there wasn't a strong sense of you know really hardwired, as we've said, cross racial coalition building going either at a sort of a if you like a municipal level or indeed at a at a sort of ground community level. Um, people, you know, want want to make those connections, but sometimes people in those communities don't know how to. Yeah. Um, so that that certainly came up. So it was as much about how do we work either at governmental and a local level to build trust, to have resources for people to come together to recognise differences and similarities. Um, and then from there, where they can then begin to frame sort of new narratives as people who live side by side uh, and, you know, in, you know, potentially in the same community. The opposite of that, in a sense, was sometimes we were going into communities where, um, into neighbourhoods, sorry, where there necessarily wasn't that extent of difference. So people, unless they were going out of their neighbourhood, are unlikely to meet many people who are different to themselves, uh, other than, as I say, in a very soft way, in a very common sense, sort of everyday sense, you know, the, you, you see people in the shops or in the malls or whatever. Uh, so there, there's, you know, to answer the question, does what government supports should be doing? I think that that's telling now as well. That if we bring it to the present, that there's work to be done to create those sorts of partnerships and coalitions that's broad based. Um, Harris? No, I, I, I mean I echo everything that you've you, you've said. Is that there's a certain sense of uh, for for governments and political organisations, just uh, a certain sense of humility that needs to be shown, uh, and alongside that humility, just a practical 
investment. So if you want to do this work, if you want to map out and engage with communities, it takes time. You need to invest in it and you need to invest in the long term because if people don't have trust in institutions or academics who come in and leave, uh, if you repeat that cycle again, that's just going to exacerbate the situation. So you've got to make a commitment and you've got to be upfront with people mm. and honest and be very clear saying we can do this, we can't do that. Um, and by the way, in order to do this, we want you, you need to do this. So what you shouldn't do is give false promises. You should have tough conversations with communities on the ground uh, and uh, be clear about what you can do, what you can't do, and what, what sense of accountability and duties they have to make things work, uh, I would say. Great. Kush, Harris, thank you very much. Um, more information about The Other America, White Working Class Perspectives on Race, Identity and Change is available on our website, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.